Well, family doctor and past president of the Ontario Medical Association, Dr. Nadia Alam, joins me now. Hi, Dr. Nadia. Good morning, Maggie. How are you? Good, good. Let's start off with the new health care deal. The ink is still <laughs> drying on this 10-year deal. Ontario will get $8.4 billion in new funding, plus $776 million in a one-time top-up. Is this enough? No. No, nowhere near enough. But I don't know that governments have near enough to be able to fund the rising costs of health care. It's really interesting, Maggie, like when you look around the world, the cost of health care is continuing to grow. And and this is true in all of the different types of health care systems and whether they're tax based like ours or or not. And part of that is that the population is getting older, they're getting more complicated. But part of it is also we have traditionally focused on hospitals mm-hmm. and other acute care settings to manage people where whereas if you try and take care of people closer to home, right, in their communities with community supports and family physicians and primary care nurses and nurse practitioners, the costs are far more reasonable. What does that mean then, Dr. Nadia? I mean, you know, I think a lot of people who are looking at this are saying the <laughs> same thing you're saying. This is not enough. And so, you know, we're putting a Band-Aid on a gashing head wound. Do we just throw up our arms and say, well, we can't solve this problem? Like, I mean, I I think about you. You're on the front lines. You're a family doctor. You're seeing the need day in and day out. Do you just lose hope? Or how do we fix this problem if we don't have enough money to do so from the federal government? Gosh, that's a hard question. I know. a really hard week. Oh, my God. I have a patient um, whom I'm struggling to get psychiatric consultation on because there just aren't enough psychiatrists. She's at least getting counseling through work, Mm. but every medication I've tried to stabilize her and keep her working has not worked, has had side effects, has not improved her mental health in any way. It's, it's been brutal and trying to connect her to through the central intake programs across Ontario has led to questions around which jurisdiction she falls into exactly. And it's been so frustrating because we've sent in form after form. I don't want to give up my hands and just, or throw up my hands and give up. Like I just, I can't, but I have to say some days are really hard trying to get people seen when they need to be seen and where they need to be seen and who they need to be seen by. And I I don't know, like this is going to require a paradigm shift. That's what it is. At the end of the day, they have to look at the healthcare system and say, okay, yeah, this system was built in the 1960s. It was great for the needs of the population back then, but we've become a lot more sophisticated since then Mm -hmm. and we've become more complex. And so how do you deal with sophistication and complexity? And it's not always in a hospital, right? If you prevent a person from getting so sick, they need a hospital then you've freed up a hospital bed. If you take care of your elderly patients, your frail patients in the community with adequate home care um, and adequate support so they can stay in their retirement homes or their home homes or their nursing homes, then you've freed up a hospital bed. You know, what I find interesting also about this deal that has been signed is that, you know, um, Minister Jones has said that they've... um, added into it uh, reviews 
um, into the deal to ensure long-term sustainability. What do you want those reviews to look like and sounds like? Because, again, I mean, we've heard also from the premier that he's concerned this is 10, 10 years. Like, that's just not enough. Um, and so, yeah, what as a family doctor, what, what do you hope that those reviews between the provincial and, and the federal governments sound like and look like throughout the years? Measuring performance in a healthcare system is really tough because there's so many factors. People can respond in so many different ways to the exact same illness that it's hard to measure performance. But I think it's actually really necessary to do so because more often than not, we throw good money after bad at programs that haven't worked in the past 15 years. Mm -hmm. In the past 15 years, I've watched as only one program one province-wide program was shut down because it really wasn't yielding any benefit. Wow. So yes, it's hard to measure performance, but it can be done. But you actually have to have some teeth to it. You have to have the courage to say, you know what, this program came out of really good intentions, but it's not working. So I'm afraid to ask this next question, <laughs> but I need to. <laughs> so do you get the sense that we are slowly being pushed into private healthcare, or at least more of a two-tier system? Yes, absolutely. I mean, a lot of our care in Canada is already delivered privately, right? Like I, as a family doctor, I'm considered a private business because I pay for my office and staff and equipment Mm. to take care of patients. So even though I'm paid through taxes, I in turn provide an environment that I pay for myself Mm. out of the money I earn. So that's considered a private business. Same thing with community service organizations, same things with um, specialized hospitals like the Shouldice Clinic, which, which does a great job with low-risk patients and hernia surgery. I think you're right. We are moving towards a parallel system. The problem is, isn't the parallel public-private system. The problem is we're kind of doing it in bits and pieces, kind of without actually talking about what a system like that could look like and what it could look like successfully. And my worry is because we're not talking about it on a national level, on a, in, a, in a sort of cohesive way where we're saying, okay, these are our Canadian values. This is what we want from our healthcare system. How do we inject more money into it? And how do we do it carefully so that the people who need protection are protected? We don't have enough tax money coming in to take care of everybody. Our population's older. People retire around age 65 if they can. And then they often live into their 90s now. And during that time, they've worked hard, paid into the system. The system should take care of them. But if we have more people who are older adults, who are elderly or frail and who need a lot of care, and fewer people able to work and fund the tax-based system, it's a mismatch, right? We know we're going to run out of money. But jumping into a private system like what we're doing now without actually talking about it and, and being careful about it and creating, like regulating the market heavily, we'll see what we saw with virtual care where all these little places started charging patients variable fees to access care. And, that, and, and there's no oversight. I want to talk a little bit more about privatized healthcare. And and what we're seeing is an uptick in the demand of, uh, you know, private clinics that offer 
you know, hip and knee replacements at a cost, obviously, mm-hmm. but at, at a quicker rate than, you know, the public health care system. But we're also seeing clinics um, as well that are offering this service, but you have to leave your province in order to get the procedure done. This seems like a sneaky way of getting around the system. Explain why some clinics are doing this. Oh, you're talking about the, the hip replacement program yeah. in Quebec. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm not sure how they get around the system, but I do. I have had patients who've paid to go to Quebec, stay in Quebec, get their surgery, get their rehab and physio, and then come back. What I've also seen are people who've left the country to do the same, to go to Turkey or go somewhere else to get the same surgery done. And I I get it, right? These people are acting out of desperation because waiting, the wait times are really, really long. And you know you've got good quality surgery happening when um, good quality medical care happening, because it's not just about the surgery, it's about the rehab too, when it's affiliated with well-known, respected um, medical organizations, right? And so the problem is it's like the rationale for it is they get out of the queue Mm -hmm. so that other people can continue, particularly people who may not be able to pay, who cannot pay to go out of province and, and get the surgeries done. The problem is the queues are so long and there are so few people who can do this that I don't know that it makes that much of a difference. Mm. It doesn't make a difference look. in the queue, you mean? No, not at all yeah. for the people who are waiting and who are vulnerable. With the new health care reform bill, mm-hmm. um, uh, Minister Jones obviously you know, was announced just last month. The idea is that, again, private clinics will be able to offer publicly funded surgeries and procedures. Um, and so hopefully that queue will get shorter and shorter. Uh, but, you know, I don't think we're going to see a stop of, you know, private clinics like Clearpoint um, mm. and others and the Duval Clinic in, in Quebec also saying, hey, come over here and we can offer you this really quickly for for a cost. We're not going to see the change. No, I totally agree with you, Maggie. Yeah. That is very insightful. I think what they need to focus focus on is how do they make the publicly funded programs better? Because there are areas in Ontario where these programs work really well. Like I live in, in Halton region and Mississauga and Halton have a rapid access program to figure out who needs hip and knee surgeries versus who doesn't and then connecting them into the, the pipeline to get hip and knee replacements. And I agree with you that these private clinics aren't going away because the need is so great, right? The backlog isn't just because of the pandemic. We had wait times even before the yeah. pandemic. The question is, how are they going to keep these programs, these private clinics from taking advantage mm-hmm. of people who are in need and who may be desperate for care? That's a really good point, Dr. Nadia. And, you know, like if you're if you are struggling with a bad knee, a bad hip, mm-hmm. then, you know, you might take out a loan just to get it done really quickly. Oh, yeah. You're really passionate about this, how pervasive <laughs> technology is in life and in healthcare, and how it affects both. How are you seeing that impact? I have a minute left. How are you seeing that impact healthcare 
in the way that people come into your office? Are they diagnosing themselves before they come in and saying, Dr. Nadia, I think I have this? <laughs> Absolutely. Actually, most of my patients have stopped going to Dr. Google because oh, it good. always tell them they have cancer, right? right. And then they freak out and right. then they come see me. So they prefer to get all of their information through me now once you build up that trust. But what's worse, Maggie, is that a lot of them, particularly younger adults, are having, and yet kids, they're having trouble sleeping. Mm -hmm. They're so anxious. Their self-esteem is in the boot. Mm -hmm. They feel like their life is not as good as the beautiful manicured life they see, lives they see of influencers, right? Mm -hmm. Because it is very insidious, the impact. And studies have proven it again and again and again. That needs to be our next topic. Next time you're on, we are going to talk about teens and mental health because I read a great article uh, from The Atlantic, I think last week's show, talking about that same thing, especially young girls, that yes. they are struggling with self-esteem, that they're struggling with loneliness. So, okay, next time you're on, Dr. Nadia, that's our topic.